Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Pasaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And this week we are joined by Ryan Broderick, the journalist who is behind the Garbage Day newsletter. Thanks for joining us, Ryan. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here uh, virtually, but yeah. (laughs) I guess just to begin with, could you tell us what is Garbage Day? So Garbage Day is a newsletter about the internet, technology, web culture. The idea is uh, three times a week, I send everybody a big dump of the worst, best, weirdest stuff on the internet. (laughs) That's that's the, the, the elevator pitch, I suppose. I think what also happens about three times a week is that you sort of break my brain with the headlines. Uh, So just before we started recording, I saw the most recent edition, which is entitled The Truth Behind Finland's Cat Girl Prime Minister. And sort of everything in my brain else just disappeared. And that is all that I can think about. What is the truth behind Finland's Cat Girl Prime Minister? Well, it's one of my favorite kind of internet stories, to be honest, because it's just one of those things where the deeper you look into it, the weirder it gets. But Basically, Finland's prime minister, who's, I believe, 37, so she's a millennial, her name is Sana Marin. She was out clubbing until four in the morning without her phone, so she didn't know that she had to quarantine because she had been in contact with someone who was positive with COVID-19. And as that was going viral, a Twitter account that no one seemed to notice was absolutely run by a neo-Nazi tweeted that she likes to edit pics of herself as a cat and post them to Yolauta, which is the Finnish version of 4chan. And I got very curious about that because if it's like 4chan, the one we know, there should be no way to prove that she's actually the one posting photoshops of her as a cat. And sure enough, that's true. It's it's actually just like a long-term Finnish meme among like neo-fascists that she's a cat girl because That's the world we live in in 2021. And so a whole bunch of very serious people in the English-speaking world fell for that this week, which is unfortunate. I guess that's sort of the thing about tech journalism is it's gone through this transition in the past few years from, you know, reporting on the bezels on phones to, like, this is the Facebook group where your grandma's learning how to 3D print a bomb. How have you found that transition? I I like it. I've never been very good at um like taking technology very seriously and I also my mind tends to wander towards the darker outcomes anyway, so like doing the like iPhone un- unboxing was never really going to be my jam. I also like although at the same time I I feel like I've become very frustrated over the years because I thought that okay, a lot of people are going to be scrutinizing what goes on online, so obviously that must mean that like the coverage is going to get better. But I don't think it has. I actually think we're now just in like a weirder place where like, you know, very serious journalists are screaming about QAnon conspiracies and taking them all very seriously. 
And I feel like we've, we've, we've overcorrected in a way where we kind of need to go back a bit and maybe just say like, there are just some things on the internet that are inherently stupid and we don't have to like claim they're going to destroy the world. Speaking of, I don't know what my question is for this, but if we can cast our minds back to the Abby Shapiro outrage cycle before the Nancy Reagan throat goat one, uh, (laughs) when she put up a video of herself singing really poorly some opera song, it's like her, her new promo. And I, as I was watching it, I thought to myself, I wonder if they're going to show her feet. Because every right. time I see Abby Shapiro mentioned online, I, you know, I'm not in normal internet spaces, but when I see her amongst her fans, they're focused on sort of these two aspects of her, neither of which are seeing, but one of which is her feet. And then at the end of the video, they have this l- very long shot of her feet walking. And I thought, yeah. what does it mean that, that she's pandering to this 4chan crowd? Yeah, so... This is a weird one, right? So, so we've got Ben Shapiro's sister. She is a, uh, she's, she's like a lifestyle influencer. She has like a very cringy Twitch channel, very bad YouTube videos. And her whole thing is kind of tied to Ben's whole thing. So she, she calls herself classically Abby right now, which is in line with like this, like this, like very fashy classical aesthetic movement that's sort of like cropping up out of the cottage core corners of the internet. And at the same time, like, Abby Shapiro is an attractive woman, and most of the men in the current right wing movement are shameless hentai addicts and like pathologically horny like maniacs. So there's like a a weird thing there where you know you've got your radicalized army of like you know anime Nazis, and you sort of have to like feed them kindling. And I guess that is like you know doing a long shot of your feet at the end of your like West Western European countryside fetishism opera video, you know, like that's the weird nightmare world that we're in at the moment, I guess. It also sort of made me think of Ben Garrison, who is somebody that like anime Nazis hated to the core. Uh, I I feel like they also hate Abby Shapiro to the core besides, you know, on the, you know, the surface. Uh, (laughs) This is, yeah, the, the cat girl destroyed my brain, but it made me think of that. Yeah, there there is definitely like this weird I mean, this is an interesting thing that I think the the far right movement has actually adopted from like the anonymous corners of the internet before they radicalized all the way, right? So like on like on 4chan when I was a teenager, there were, you know, figures like Boxy, who was the girl that all the 4chan users were obsessed with and they they made her life an absolute nightmare and 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 she's not really online anymore. But they were obsessed with her and they hated her and they, they loved her and they, they called her the queen of B, which is 4chan's random board. So from the very beginning, these anonymous message boards have had this weird, like this weird, violent obsession with certain women. And it just like happens every nine months, every 10 months. And Abby Shapiro is like right in the, in the, in the middle of this right now. And obviously there's, there's like the, the undeniable like dimension that she is a Jewish woman. So the, the sort of, extremely white nationalist, extremely anti-Semitic internet users, they they don't really know how to deal with this. And so it, it sort of like uh, manifests in very bizarre and and uh, embarrassing ways and, and hateful ways. Right. When you're sorting through the garbage, as you have been for a while now, how do you discern between one pile of garbage and the next? In other words, what's your approach? Uh, so it's definitely changed over the years, but right now it's it's like there's two prongs, I guess. Like one is like try to find something com- so completely in- insane that like you know people think it's funny or interesting. And then the other is I have a lot of readers who are 
late 20s, early 30s. They don't really have the time to sit on the internet and figure out like why everyone is talking about Nancy Reagan being a blowjob queen. And so they kind of need somebody to to explain that sort of stuff. And what's really funny is like over the course of the pandemic, I feel like mainstream culture has been replaced with that kind of stuff. You know, like I, I, I spent a half hour today trying to figure out why everyone was talking about Aaron Sorkin. And it turns out it was because he was tweeting about a piece about the succession actor, Jeremy Strong. So it was like three layers of discourse deep. And I feel like that's kind of a service I can provide with my newsletter, which is like, okay, here's, here's all the dumb stuff you need to understand just to understand the thing that everyone's talking about right now which is uh, more confusing than it's ever been, which is kind of good for me, but I assume bad for humanity. I don't know. Uh, you wrote a story a few years ago. You did an experiment where you set up a Facebook account and let the algorithm take control and saw the direction that it took that account. Uh, Facebook described that as a stunt. Uh, were you vindicated then to see that they replicated your stunt and that was revealed in the Facebook papers? <sighs> yeah, man. So you're like, I... I currently don't have a therapist, but like when I eventually do get one, I will spend a lot of time talking about my long-term relationship reporting on like with Facebook spokespeople because like their main tactic is, is gaslighting. And I hate that word because it's such, such like a TikTok buzzword at the moment. But like they, if you, if you find something about Facebook and you're a reporter and you email them, they will spend all of their time and energy telling you that not only are you wrong, you're crazy for even thinking it. And that's this experiment that I did many years ago was, uh, one of these instances where I set up a Facebook and the reason I did it was because a, a family member of mine had been sort of hard radicalized by Facebook over the course of like two years. So I wanted to sort of like see what he was seeing. And so I built this Facebook. I liked some pages. Then I just liked everything that Facebook recommended to me. Then I took the findings, sent them to Facebook and they spent like days trying to convince us not to run the story, convince me that I was crazy, that it was unethical. And then of course we find out a year later that they were doing this internally and they had created their own version of like a radicalized page to see what was happening. So it's like vindicating, but it's also maddening because like, I, I just think about the amount of time wasted, you know, like I could have done other stuff with my life. <laughs> like I, I feel like I just wasted a lot of time, like on horrible phone calls with Facebook PR people. It's sort of crazy. Cause it's so self-evident. I mean, I'd, I'd been seeing the same thing. And so when your story came out, I was like, Oh good. Someone's paying attention to this. And then you sort of, it was good that Facebook had been paying attention as well, but I guess the, yeah, they, they were more interested in covering it up. Just as an aside, I recently logged into a Facebook account that had uh, sat untouched for about five years. I'd never liked a single page, never joined a group, never posted anything. And it was serving up just a feed of Chicken Kiev ads. Oh, like, amazing. <laughs> the algorithm didn't know what to do with it. No, so this is this is my favorite thing at the moment. So I, I log into my Facebook like once every three or four months now, and I'm just like obsessed with how bad the content is. And it's very clear to me that like people aren't using it properly anymore because like Facebook videos, I could I could spend hours talking about like how insane Facebook videos have become, but it, like the women eating out of toilets and stuff, like that whole genre of internet content. And it's just like amazing to me because this company you know, they're the largest institution aside from the Catholic Church in human history, right? Like, it's like 2 billion users, puts Zuckerberg on par with a pope. And yet, it's like, completely unable to provide anything of value, which I mean, you know, depending on your point of view on organized religion, I guess makes sense, right? But like, it's just very funny to me that it's this massive thing. And it's like, look at this attractive woman eat a popsicle out of a toilet. And it's like, 7 million views. Yeah, okay, sure. But here's some chicken Kiev ads on top of it. Great. <laughs> Supposing that there was some sort of freaky Friday situation and you found yourself swapped with the Zuck for a day, what would you do? 
I mean, him and I do agree that Sweet Baby Ray's barbecue sauce is fantastic barbecue sauce. I don't know if you guys have it in Australia, but it's really good. Uh, so I would I would definitely break into Zuck's uh, barbecue sauce vault if he's got one. But I think like. I go back and forth on it where I'm like, okay, would the world get better if we unplugged Facebook? And I'm not totally convinced it would because I feel like we sort of missed that point, you know? And plus, like, I I guess what I would do if I was him was like, I would ride his stupid, like, little wakeboard thing, you know? Like the electric one he was riding around. That seems really cool and I can't really afford that. So I I guess that's what I would probably do with my Freaky Friday day. Just out on the wakeboard, double fisting Sweet Baby Ray's. Yeah, just chugging barbecue sauce, just wakeboarding around. Face full of sunscreen, like I've never been outside before. Yeah. Oh, this is a feature that the metaverse might deliver us. Oh my god! Look, I, I just, I just, I, I don't understand how you can have a metaverse and not like be able to have sex in it. Like, what's the point of VR? Like, the, like historically, this is, I mean, this is true. Historically, the first thing that happened after the earliest VR platforms were created were, was teledildonics. Like, it has gone hand in hand, so to speak, since the very beginning, 30 years ago. So I just don't understand how Zuckerberg can, can announce a metaverse and have no, no plan for that. <laughs> when I think of Zuck, uh, Zuckerberg, I don't immediately think of sex. No, no, no. I, I think it's very clear why uh, his avatars in the metaverse don't have like, legs, because there's just no, there's no genitals there. So it's, you're totally fine, you know. This year of our law, 2021, began with the <laughs> insurrection in Washington, D.C., uh, which was a coup attempt that you didn't really have to look too hard to find being planned basically in public. Uh, what was your reaction to the insurrection and what did you make of the, you know, the platform reactions to it? It was, a, it was definitely a turning point for me. I feel like I had, I had spent most of my time as a professional reporter, writer, whatever, trying to remain professional somewhat in my public discourse about Facebook. And I think the insurrection was a moment where I was like, no, no, this is over. Like I, I, I can't, I can't in good conscience, like act like there's a, there's another side here. So in my own personal experience, I think it was probably a breaking point with, with Facebook as a, as an institution. I was like, there's, there's no good world where this can exist. And then like the long-term effects of it, I don't know. I've been, I've been obsessively reading about coups in the last year, to be honest, I'm reading a lot of literature about South America during the sixties and seventies. Cause I, I, I just, I, I don't want to be too like hyperbolic, but I just don't know where America's headed. Uh, and the, the insurrection was, was kind of a, a very frightening, weird thing that I'm still trying to process. I guess we all are. I don't know. Uh, the anniversary is coming up, which is sure to be very strange. This might go back to what you were saying before about, uh, you know, some tech journalism, but I did see a lot of like, oh, there was a PowerPoint for the coup. Oh yeah, like that. That was the story. Yeah, of course, it's like I'm sure that they. I'm sure they wrote down <laughs> coup plans before there was PowerPoint. Yeah, no. I, what, what I do find interesting about the entire insurrection, like even the video that was released, I think yesterday with Kanye West's publicist like threatening uh, an election worker, it's just something like very quintessentially American. Like inside of the entertainment industrial complex, we have like Kanye West's publicist uh, saying that you know election workers are going to go to jail and we have our reality show president, you know, making PowerPoints and, and, and then we have like the insurrection is breaking down the doors of the Capitol building and just streaming themselves on D live or whatever it is. And it's like, it's just so fascinating to me that like our current moment in America is like inseparable from like our feelings about celebrity and our feelings about like the attention economy. It's, it's just very strange that like, this is how it happens. I suppose it, it's, I don't know. I thought I thought coups would be less embarrassing, but I guess they're all kind of like this in the beginning. <laughs> I, I guess if you can pull it off, uh, it doesn't matter how embarrassing you were in doing it. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there was a great piece. I want to say it was in the, yeah, it was in the nation recently and it was about the beginnings of the coup attempt in the Philippines in the eighties. And the first wave of the coup attempt was like comical. Like everyone was just sort of hanging out, getting hammered in this hotel. And then everyone was like laughing at all the generals as they were being like, you know, arrested. And then like a year later, there were missiles being shot at each other. You know, so the, the beginnings of it are always kind of goofy, I think. So that's why I'm sort of holding my breath until 2024, I guess. I'm not trying to make any long-term plans, I think, until 2024, which, you know, based on the variants that we're having with COVID, like that might be totally fine. You know, do we just sit and wait to see what happens? Well, speaking of 2024, Trump has uh, launched his own or is launching his own social media platform. Could you tell us a bit about how you think that's going to go? Yeah, I'm, I'm a very vocal, I'm a very vocal antagonist, I suppose, or critic of uh, right-wing social networks. One, I think they're stupid because all social networks right now are inherently right-wing. And all the incentives for algorithmic recommendations, in my opinion, are radicalized, are, you know, support sort of propaganda. But I also just think that, like, there's no point in having a right-wing social network. Like, what are they going to do? Like, (laughs) are they going to, like, there's no version of right-wing ideology right now or possibly ever that doesn't involve like bullying other people and attacking other people. That's why 4chan goes on raids all the time. It's why all the, you know, everyone got on parlor and the first thing they did was like, let's go <laughs> overthrow the government. Like there's just no version of a, of a free speech social network that makes any sense. I, there, there's no connection to power. There's no way to go like bully Rosie O'Donnell, which is Trump's favorite thing. People forget that because Trump's not on Twitter anymore, but people forget that like the majority of his feed was just like, you know, making cracks about Barney Frank's nipples and talking about how ugly the women on the view are like <laughs> that. That's what, that's what those people want. They want to antagonize activists and, you know, queer people and people of color and women. And so if all those guys are on a right wing social network, like they're just going to talk about cryptocurrency. Like, I don't know. What do you do? <laughs> what do you do on a right wing social network? Ron, we've also seen uh, nominally uh, left figures, like uh, Glenn Greenwald, make a transition to these new platforms and arguably uh, use them in this fashion. What do you think it says about, uh, I guess, uh, figures like that and and journalism generally that there's been this kind of uh, convergence between some elements of left and right? Yeah, it's really weird. The the, the Glenn Greenwald conundrum is really strange. I suspect – so there's like a crop of writers – who were kind of like lefty, but they were very focused on Eastern Europe, on Russia. And I think a lot of the mainstream media reaction to the possibility of Russiagate or the fact that like Russia was colluding with Trump or whatever really broke those guys' brains. That, 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 that seems to be kind of like the beginnings of this is like the Russiagate thing was where everybody got angry. But I also think that like there's, you know, like there's more money in being a reactionary. Like if I wanted to, to, get really, really rich on Substack, I could make Garbage Day like a super transphobic diatribe against, you know, the mainstream media and, you know, millennial snowflakes and stuff. But like, I don't want to do that. <laughs> I'm, I'm not a transphobe. And I, I, you know, I, 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 I don't think it's worth, you know, what it does to your soul to do that. But I also think that there's this other thing where if you're, if you're trying to write a newsletter every single day, and it's not something like Garbage Day, which is like, basically a glorified roundup of links. But if you're trying to write like a take every day, eventually you're just going to start doing what my friend Charlie Warzel coined the term grievance blogging, where you just like open up Twitter's explore tab, pick a hashtag that makes you angry and write about it for 2000 words. And like, there's really good money in that. But also I think like eventually you're going to need psychiatric help. Like it's like life is just too short to, to write up, 
Twitter trending topics every single day, you know? One issue that you've identified, and we love a pipeline on Yenar Pesaran, but uh, one pipeline you've identified is the UK tabloid to American conservative outrage pipeline. Uh, oh, yeah. Can you explain what that pipeline is? It's fascinating. And it's not exactly new, but I think it, it has it has become energized in the last uh, – it's become energized since Biden took office, I think. So, like, I think that – I do think the the worst thing that has ever happened to – global democracy, and especially American democracy, was right-wing British tabloids figuring out SEO. <laughs> I think Americans should have never been exposed to British tabloid journalism. I lived in the UK for four years, and I I, I don't think Americans have an ability to handle British tabloid journalism. And it, and it, and it broke its containment unit about 10, year, uh, 10, 20 years ago. And the Mail Online is like this radioactive substance that is infecting Americans' brains. And there are now like an entire class of influencers that what they do is they wait for a Murdoch publication or they wait for a UK tabloid or whatever it is to find something that proves that crime is up or people of color are stealing your jobs or refugees are at the at the gates or whatever hysterical nonsense you, you want to find. Oh, uh, men are pretending to be trans to hide in your bathrooms and, and, and to take your women, whatever you're looking for. These tabloids hire a bunch of 22-year-olds on zero-hour contracts and make them find these stories, write them up in the biggest, stupidest font you can imagine. And then there are these guys on Twitter, mainly based in America, who repackage these stories and they sort of weaponize them to support American discourse. And it gets really confusing because like a lot of this stuff is based in Europe or it's based in the UK or it, it's it, it gets really, really nasty. And and I think that's where we're seeing the the like... US UK turf connections starting to happen because like this stuff is just all over the internet. And and fa- and now we know that Facebook was actively promoting this stuff over other stuff. Like we know that right-wing publications get better placement in the algorithm than left-wing or center. So, you know, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> Super cool. There's also this sort of aspect to it that you've written about of like these influencers who throw them like they throw themselves at the at the mercy of the tabloids. You know, they, they there's something about them that they know will outrage, and they play into it. Yeah, I, I, so it's definitely a thing in the UK. Like, there's like the Z list celebrities who just like you know, or like I, I I know a reporter who did this amazing story a couple of years ago about like lower income mothers who will just like make up lies for money, and then the tabloids print them. Like, uh, it's like a whole thing in the UK. But more broadly, I think. A lot of people who want attention and they want attention because attention now, thanks to virality, can be turned into capital and commerce. So like these people know that if they piss off the whole internet, like they can monetize it. And it's especially popular in the UK, but I think it is also happening in the US and I think in Australia as well. Like the, these platforms know that outrage makes everybody really angry and then they use that to keep people using the website. So like, Best example is Bean Dad in America from earlier this year, uh, which was one day before the insurrection, which I love pointing out. It's my favorite fact is that Bean Dad happened one day before the insurrection and the whole internet got really mad at him. And now he has a Patreon that is making thousands of dollars a month. So, you know, that's just, uh, that's life on the internet, baby. <laughs> I didn't know that about the Patreon. Yeah. I've been trying to interview him. I really want to talk to him. Yeah. I, 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 that whole episode like really unnerved me. I, I have complex feelings about all that stuff. I, I'm not a anti cancel culture person, but at the same time, like the Bean Dad fiasco was very strange, and like all of the out, like all of the anger 
on the internet this last year has just been really fascinating to watch. It, it feels like a, a very out of control fire in a way. And I, I don't really know where it's headed. Ryan, in terms of Trump in 2024, let's say for just for argument's sake that the Trump social media platform does fail as it will. How do you think he will weaponize social media to try and come back in 2024? This is an interesting question. Like, Part of me wonders if the, th- the threat to American democracy in 2024 won't be Trump. W- what seems to have happened in the, in the last year is sort of this, this interesting game the, the right wing here is doing where they're sort of testing the waters to see like how much they need Trump to, to do what they want to do, which is obviously take over the, the country. And so Trump is this weird figure where he's off kind of sequestered from the mainstream discourse. He's, you know, every couple of weeks, he's got a crazy scheme and old man Trump's going to launch a TV station or he's going to make a blog, you know, whatever. And meanwhile, though, the, the, the Steve Bannon war room led coalition that's forming among the QAnon Congress people and the, the, uh, the militias. That to me is, is far more worrying. And I, I don't know how that manifests. I think if Trump is alive <laughs> and like able to form even semi coherent sentences, they'll probably run him as a candidate of some kind. But Steve Bannon's information machine and his, his, he's become a lot more bold about saying that he, you know, wants to remove democracy from America. And that to me is more worrisome. I'm, I'm, I'm more scared of QAnon. I'm more scared of Lauren Boebert and, and Marjorie Taylor Greene and, you know, all of those people. So I don't know. I don't, I don't know how Trump will factor in because I suspect people are beginning to think he's more trouble than he's worth. Uh, but I'm not sure. Just finally, this is our um, last show for the year, Ryan. Looking back on it, what was the best and worst of a garbage year? I feel like the ever given getting stuck in the Suez Canal was like a really, like really nice moment. Like I'm really glad that we all did that together. I feel like that really brought the world together and also shut down the global economy for a while, which is also pretty funny. In terms of the worst thing this year, I would say the Lazy Lions NFTs thing. Do you know about this? Yes. Well, I, I, I know that there are lazy lines NFTs. Is there a particular aspect that makes it so much worse than all of the other really lazy, yeah. badly drawn NFTs? Yeah. The one, the thing about the lazy lines thing that really gets me is that like, it's so close to furry fetish art. Like it's so close and yet it's not. And like part of me wants to like take these guys aside and, and, and be like, Hey, like you don't need to get in on a pyramid scheme to buy and sell furry art. Like if you want to buy a photo of like a lion's O face, like you don't have to join a crypto pyramid scheme. You can just do that. You can go on Instagram. You and get it an for free. And yeah. Well, no, no, hold on. First of all, fur, furry commissioners are like essentially like the, the, the robber barons of the internet, you know, like they're, they're very wealthy individuals. I, I just, I don't know the whole NFT thing. I, I, I like it in a sense because it's so goofy. And like, I feel like the internet has needed like a comical villain. Like we, the internet's had like a Joker or like a Thanos level villain for so long that it's nice to have like a penguin or like a or like a Doctor Octopus level villain. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Like the like the NFT crowd to me, it's like, oh, you guys, well, oh, you're gonna you're gonna buy the Constitution? I'm sure you are. You know, it's like it's like a minor supervillain as opposed to the Thanos level threats that I feel like we've been going through for the last five years. It's like, oh, okay, yeah, go buy go buy the Constitution. Sure. Uh. Good luck, guys.
Just before we started this, uh, Twitter helpfully let me know that there was a space that I could start listening to called Pudgy Penguins, What Happened? And it had like 10,000 people in it. I would love to know what happened to the Pudgy Penguins NFT. Yeah, what happened? Uh, did you guys hear that uh, unvaccinated sperm is the new Bitcoin? That's my favorite meme at the moment. Ooh. That's a really big one. Uh, that's what everyone's going to be hoarding next, apparently. Oh, God. Well, on that note, let's leave it there. Ryan, where can people find you online? You can follow me on Twitter. Uh, I have a very terrible Twitter feed, uh, which is at Broderick, B-R-O-D-E-R-I-C-K. But uh, if you don't want to do that, you can get all the stuff that I'm rage tweeting about condensed and and organized in a nice way at garbageday.email. So that's uh, that's my newsletter. And, And that's a much better read than my insane thoughts on Twitter. So, Well, thank you so much for joining us. And to the listeners, thanks so much for listening throughout the year. We will be back on January 20. Have a good one. See you later. Have you heard of long COVID? If you or someone you know have had COVID-19, you may still experience symptoms weeks or months later. There are many symptoms of long COVID, but the most frequent are extreme tiredness, shortness of breath, and muscle aches and joint pains. Anyone can experience long COVID, including children. You can find information in your language on the Health Translations website, healthtranslations.vic.gov.au. Just type long COVID as a keyword. A 3CR supporter. Coming up at the Nightcap, Better Late, running till 3am every Friday and Saturday, featuring the best local and international bands and DJs, including Zeitgeist Freedom Energy Exchange, Gypsy Brown with Tando, Spasta with Adriana and Odd Mob, Domingo Latino Sundays with La Influencia and Calle Luna. Upcoming shows including Art vs. Science, ModCon, I Know Leopard and more. For info and tickets, head to thenightcat.com.au. A 3CR supporter.